Hi, Curious Listener, Michelle O'Dell. Welcome back to Corn Fed Killer. Before we get started on today's case, I want to mention that I recently got a new microphone and I noticed in the past couple episodes there were a few sound issues here and there. And I just want to ask you to please bear with me as I'm still trying to figure out the nuances of this new microphone. So hopefully this episode will not have those issues. But if it does, please forgive me. Um, Thank you. (laughs) So, all right, today we're discussing a brutal murder and dismemberment that took place in 1983 in Hammond, Indiana. Hammond, Indiana is a city situated on Lake on the edge of Lake Michigan. It's an industrial city, um, a city that drew many residents originally to work in the factories there. Being so close to the lake, it you know had a lot of factories to deal with transportation and that sort of thing, and that was originally what drew residents to the city. And the Comiati family was no exception. Paul Comiati moved his wife, Rosemary, and his children's Marianne and Paul Jr. to Hammond for work. Paul Comiati Sr. worked mostly construction. They were the atypical suburban lower middle class family. Um, from the outside, you know, seemingly like everyone else in their neighborhood. They were the typical nuclear family, meaning, you know, a working dad and mom, home together, married together, two kids, um, the mo- a kind of mom that cooked dinner, kept the house, kissed your boo-boos, um, that sort of thing. Now, Rosemary did work outside the home as the kids got older, and but she, you know they she was always described as a sweet caring mom and it seemed like a typical normal quote unquote normal family from the outside but as they say you never know what goes on behind closed doors paul junior recalls that his father never seemed to be really happy he always seemed to be mad at the world Paul Jr. describes his father as a man who hardly ever smiled or laughed. Just a lot of, pardon me, a lot of rage and anger bubbling underneath all the time. Paul Sr. was a heavy smoker and an alcoholic. Though he did go to work every day, he drank himself into a stupor every night. And when he was drinking, he was not a happy drunk He was a mean drunk. He was obnoxious, violent, and he was particularly violent with Rosemary. She was battered and bruised a lot of the time. He beat her, hit her on the regular. Paul Jr. recalls that when he was just 10 years old, his father chased him down with a gun and right outside in the neighborhood, chased him around the house, down the road, wielding a gun and threatened him with it. He told his son that he was an embarrassment, that he didn't want him, that he had been a mistake, that he wished he had never been born. You know, just the most gut-wrenching, horrible thing that you can say to a child to make them feel, you know, worthless. 
And that's who Paul Sr. was when he was drinking. And he did beat on his son regularly, as well as we mentioned the mother. <clears throat> Eventually, Paul Sr. developed emphysema from all the smoking, of course, and a hardening of the arteries. He actually underwent open heart surgery. After that, he retired from construction. He was about 65 years old at this point. And what he did, you probably have guessed, is that he drank all day, every day. Now he didn't have to get up and go to work and then start drinking after work. Now he could start drinking at breakfast. And his son would say that by noon he was pretty much tanked. And that was on a daily basis. So you can imagine things just got worse in the house. There were more beatings. There was more anger. Everything was tense, violent, unhappy, uneasy. So daughter Marianne left the house when, as soon as she could when she turned 18. Shortly after that, she had a son with a man named Billy Vandiver, whom she did marry. And Billy seemed to be taking okay care of Marianne. And they, like I said, they had a son. And Paul Sr., sort of surprisingly to the family, really loved the grandson and was sweet and kind and played with him. And Paul Jr. would say that if there was anything in the world that made his father happy, it was the grandson. Paul Sr. didn't like Billy, though. Billy Vandiver was from a large family of seven kids. He was the sixth child. And Billy had a long rap sheet, starting in the juvenile courts. As a juvenile, he was arrested many times for stealing cigarettes, hubcaps, that sort of thing. He stole a car, he went to jail, and then when he was an adult, he had many stints of robberies and was in, kind of in and out of the system. So you could understand why Paul Sr. was not his biggest fan. But that did obviously cause tension, even more tension, between Marianne and her father. Um, in 1983, Marianne and Billy moved into the home, into the, the Comiati home with their son. So now in the home, we've got Paul Sr., Paul Jr., Rosemary, and now Marianne, Billy, and their son. So a full, full house and you can imagine tensions continued to rise between Paul Sr. and Billy. And then due to that, of course, between Paul Sr. and Marianne. And the family was frequently in a state of yelling, hitting, fighting, just awful, just really awful. You know, and it kind of begs the question, you know, I, you know, why would Marianne put her son back in that situation. She left the house because of the volatility. So I'm imagining that she, it must have been a desperate situation for her to bring her child into that. And, you know, upon learning all of this, I, I really just keep thinking back to the grandson. You know, he he's such an innocent in all of this. And now, you know, he's growing up in this volatile situation, seeing his grandpa, whom he obviously loved, 
you know, hitting, fighting with his mother, with his grandma, with his father. It, you know, crazy. All right. So one night on February 19th of 1983, Marianne had enough. She'd had enough of the bullshit, basically. So she collected her son and she attempted to leave the house. But Paul Sr. grabbed her son from her and said, you are not taking him with you, but you got to go. He hit his daughter. That night, she went crying into her brother's room. She didn't leave the house. She wasn't going to leave her son. She went into Paul Jr.'s room and said, we have to do something. Quote, he needs to die end quote. Now, Paul Jr., he agreed. He agreed with his sister. So after this night, they approach their mother, Rosemary, and tell them, you know, we think dad needs to die. We think we need to kill him. And she agrees with her children that he needs to die. She doesn't object. She doesn't say, you know, this isn't a good idea. Yeah, he's a dickhead, but no, we can't kill somebody. She agrees. The only thing she says to her children is, I don't want to have to clean up a mess in the house. Wow. Wow. So Paul Sr., unbeknownst, you know, he doesn't know anything about what's going on. He just continues on his normal, you know, drinking, fighting self. And his family hatches plans to kill him. They hate him. They plot together and plan out how they should do it. Their first idea is that they think, well, maybe we should make it look like a robbery. They think, well, maybe we'll shoot him as he's walking out of one of his local watering holes. You know, he liked to frequent the bars in the area. And then we'll grab his wallet and we'll make it look like a robbery. That way there's no mess in the house and no one is, is any the wiser. It'll look like someone just tried to rob him as he was leaving. Now, Billy says, no, no, no. He poo-poos that idea. He says it's too risky to do it out in public. Someone could see them. So Billy Van Diver says, I got a better idea. Billy wanted to show that he could protect everyone. He was really up for this. Um, he, he wanted to be the man of the house, basically. So he says, you know, let's, let's uh, think on this a little bit more. So then they decide, and um, Billy comes up with this idea, like I said, they decide that they are going to put give him extra nitroglycerin now nitroglycerin is a drug that you take if you've had a heart attack i believe or uh, major heart issues um it's a prescription medicine but you don't take it unless you've had a heart attack or unless you've got these issues and the doctor has prescribed it for you and there's obviously a certain amount you're supposed to take so rosemary happened to be working in a drugstore at the time and she accesses these nitroglycerin tablets and so 
she started tripling, even quadrupling Paul Sr.'s dosage of the nitroglycerin, hoping that this would kill him and that it would look just like a heart attack. But it doesn't work. He gets sick, he throws up, but he doesn't die. It does not kill him. Okay, so back to the drawing board, right? Back to the killing drawing board. So they decide rat poison. So Rosemary puts the rat poison in his coffee. It doesn't kill him either. Um, he talks about going to see a doctor, though, because it's making him sick. And now the family's like, oh, shoot, you know, what if he goes to the doctor and they do some tests and they find out, you know, that we've been trying to poison him. So they decide, no, we got to do something else. We can't go the rat poison um, way any longer. So, um, yeah. So then they decide, okay, how about this? We're going to knock him out with ether and then inject him with a syringe of air bubbles, which will cause him to have a heart attack or, you know, look like just a plain old heart attack. And, you know, no one will be wise to our scheme, right? So this is now their plan. So the first time they go in with the air bubble syringe, they back off because when they walk in there, the grandson is sleeping in the bed with his grandpa and they decide, nah, can't do it. All right. So on the night of March 20th, 1983, Paul Jr. is inside and he's inside the house and he signals using a flashlight, you know, like out the window, blinking it a couple times. He's signaling to Billy Van Diver, who's outside, letting him know that Paul Sr. is now asleep. It's about 1 a.m. And Billy and Paul Jr. are going to try the ether and the air bubble thing again. So they go get the ether. They find the bottles almost empty. Apparently, someone hadn't screwed the cap on tightly and the ether evaporated. <laughs> so these guys are, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but it is funny in a dark, twisted way that they're, you know, trying to kill this guy and he just won't die. And they keep kind of fumbling and, you know, fucking it up, basically. All right, so... They decide, well, well, we'll try it anyway. And most of it's evaporated, but we'll try to see what we can do. So Paul Sr. starts struggling really hard against Billy as he's trying to knock him out with the ether. It has no effect on him. There's not enough of it. So Billy tries to suffocate him with a pillow while Paul Jr. holds his father's legs down, you know, pinning him to the bed. Paul Sr. is fighting for his life. So Billy takes out a gun and he had it stashed in his pocket and he hits Paul, Paul Sr. in the head with it, hoping, you know, to knock him out or at least get him to stop struggling. And that doesn't work. He continues to struggle. So Billy pulls out a fishing knife that he has in his pocket. Now, this is like a fillet knife, a really sharp nice knife that you would use to fillet fish. If you're a fisher, you know what that looks like. Um, 
So Billy takes that out and he starts stabbing Paul Sr. And while he's being stabbed, Paul Sr. is calling out to his son, Paul Jr., who's holding his legs down. He's calling out to him, you know, can't we work something out, son? Please, I'm sorry, don't do this, that sort of thing. And Paul Jr. would say later that he just kept thinking of all the times that his father had beat his mother and he just held those legs down. Billy Vandiver stabbed him over and over until he stopped struggling. It would come out later after, you know, the coroner's report and all that, the medical examiner's report, rather, um, that he was stabbed over 30 times. Rosemary and Marianne, meanwhile, are just sitting in the living room, listening and waiting. They can hear the struggling. They can hear Paul Sr. calling out to his son, fighting for his life. They do nothing. They don't move from the living room couch. They just wait. They wait for Billy Vandiver to tell them what to do next. He's like the leader of this whole thing right now. So once Paul, like I said, stops struggling, they think he's dead. Billy and Paul Jr. go into the garage, presumably, look, presumably looking for tools that they can use to dispose of Paul Sr.'s body. Billy selects a pruning saw and a crosscut saw. And when they return to the master bedroom where Paul Sr. is now lying in puddles of blood, there's blood everywhere. Like we said, he struggled hard. There's blood on the floor, on the walls, on the bed. The sheets are soaked. The mattress is soaked. So this mess that Rosemary didn't want to happen has happened tenfold, basically, right? This is a horrific, bloody mess. And it's just going to get worse. So they notice when they get back in there, he is not dead. He isn't able to fight back any longer, but he is still alive. He's still breathing. He's still alive. So what do they do? Billy Van Diver uses one of the saws and cuts Paul Sr.'s head off. Let that sink in for a second. He was alive as Billy begins cutting his head off. So now he is decapitated and Paul Jr. and Billy then go into the living room where Rosemary and Marianne are still waiting and they announce that the deed is done, that Paul Sr. is dead, that their husband and father is dead. Rosemary's response, quote, all right, let's have a drink to celebrate, end quote. And they do. The family is jubilated. They are happy. This is a party. They are relieved to be rid of their abuser, to be rid of this monster. 
Paul Sr. Now, keep in mind, the grandson is in the house when all this is going down. All right, so now they have to figure out how to dispose of him. How are they going to get rid of this body? So Billy and Paul Jr. commence to cutting him up into pieces. Billy's already chopped off his head, so now they decide they're going to chop off his limbs and so forth. Basically just hacking him to pieces. So they do that and then put the pieces into separate black garbage bags. And the women are just in the living room toasting to his death and just watching TV, just chilling. At one point, Billy Van Diver brings a glass in which he has placed Paul Sr.'s penis and says to Rosemary, hey, you want a souvenir? Her response is that she didn't want it when he was alive. Why would she want it now? And, of course, there's uproarious laughter at that, and more drinks and toasting and just general fun. I mean, you know, it was kind of funny, <laughs> you know, you got to admit, but shit, you know, the callousness of this family is unsettling, to say the least. Um, you know, obviously Paul Sr. was, you know, a bit of a fucking asshole, but he was a human being. I mean, still a human and still the father, the husband, right? I mean, I can't imagine being complicit in the killing of anyone, even someone I hated. And to not, at the very least, have some kind of feeling about it. Uh, it it's really unimaginable it really is all right so after all paul all of paul senior's parts are bagged up paul jr and billy van diver take the bags to the car and drive him to the lakefront lake michigan lakefront and dump them they put pieces of plywood over the bags and then they return home and the family decides on what cover story they're going to use to explain where Paul Sr. is. So they decide on the cover story of saying that he took a fishing trip to Canada and he'll be back in a little bit. So after the homicide, the family continues on pretty much as normal. Uh, Rosemary returns to work. She does treat herself to a little bit of shopping. Paul Jr. actually hosts a two-kegger party at his house uh, with, you know, his friends from high school. He's still only 17 at this point. Um, and if you know, I'm sure you know, a kegger is, of course, a party featuring a beer keg. So he had a two kegger, dude. So, you know, this is crazy to have a party with people in a house where you just murdered your father is beyond comprehensible, isn't it? Okay. All right. So Billy and Marianne, they take a little road trip, but when they return, they don't return to the family house. In fact, Marianne stays with a friend and I'm assuming that her son is with her. 
Now it's March 1983, and people are noticing that Paul Comiati is not around. Like we said, he liked to frequent the local bars. And when his drinking buddies notice that he's not around, they kind of start wondering, what the heck? You know, so they actually do call Rosemary and say, hey, you know, we haven't seen Paul. Where's Paul? And Rosemary says, oh, no, he's not missing. He went on this trip somewhere in Canada to go fishing and he'll be he'll be home soon. And his buddies are kind of like weird. You know, that doesn't make sense. He didn't say anything about a trip. And, you know, he wasn't really a big fisherman. So they don't really think it makes sense. But, you know, what are they going to say? But then a couple weeks go by and people are starting to wonder. People keep asking. And so Rosemary thinks, okay, I got to do something to make it, you know, we don't, you know, we don't want it to look suspicious. So she actually goes to the police and reports her husband missing. Local authorities are concerned that maybe he'd met with some sort of accident or something. And they don't buy the fishing trip story because for one, it's March and March in Indiana is cold. It's, you know, it's still winter in March in Indiana. Um, lots of big snowstorms happen in March. It's not uncommon for it to be cold, snowy, and that sort of thing in March in Indiana. And it's not a typical time where you would be taking any big trips. And, you know, it just doesn't make sense. So he also, you know, according to his buddies and people who knew him, he didn't really fish. He wasn't like a person who took big fishing trips. His drinking buddy said, you know, if he was going to go fishing, he went like for the day. He would take his grandson to Lake Michigan for the day or something like that. But as far as they knew, that was the extent of his fishing habits. He wasn't a man who traveled to fish generally. <clears throat> So police are, are concerned. Meanwhile, Rosemary is suddenly faced with a big problem by the name of Billy Van Diver. Billy now wants Rosemary to pay him $20,000 for killing Paul Sr. He fancies himself a hired assassin now, and he says, hey, I got rid of them for you. You owe me. She doesn't have that kind of money. And even if she did, Billy never said anything about money before. And he was more than happy to kill Paul Sr. He hated Paul just like everybody else. So now she's afraid. She's afraid that Billy Vandiver will come after her or Marianne or Paul Jr., um, she knows, obviously, firsthand what Billy is capable of. So she's starting to freak out. After two months of stress and worry for herself and for her children and becoming increasingly afraid of Billy Van Diver as he's threatening her and trying to get her to pay him some money, Rosemary Comiati decides to take control of the situation. She goes to police and she says that she heard her son-in-law, Billy Van Diver, and her daughter 
Marianne talking about killing Paul Sr. and dumping his body by the lake. She threw her own daughter under the goddamn bus. So, uh, yikes. Now, Paul Jr. maintains, even today, that he didn't think that his mother was trying to get Marianne in trouble. She just didn't think it through. Nah, I don't know about that. I don't think he's given her enough credit. All right. So, a detective named Sergeant Williams is skeptical, pardon me, skeptical of Rosemary's story, but he does believe that some of it is true and that she definitely knows what happened to her husband. So they got to check it out, of course. So Detective Williams and another officer of the Hammond Police Department, Detective Mitchell, conduct a search of the lakefront. And Mitchell and Williams, they really don't expect to find anything. Because like I said, they, they're not entirely buying Mary, uh, pardon me, Rosemary's story. But after a couple hours, they come across what appears to be a pile of plywood. Detective Mitchell recalls that he could smell the odor of decomposition as he and Williams approached the pile. They put on gloves and they begin poking around the pile. They quickly find find the pile of garbage bags. Detective Williams opens one of the bags and is greeted by the head of Paul Sr. Detective Williams recalls that when he opened the bag, the eyes of Paul Sr. were wide open as if looking at him, and it was startling. You can imagine. Something that he won't forget. So at this point, they call in the big guns. They call in the crime scene investigators, police, the coroner service, everything. The scene is taped off and the investigation into the scene and the apparent murder of Paul Comiati Sr. begins. Detective Williams knows that the first place to find answers is the family home. His gut tells him that the home is likely where Paul was killed. With search warrant in hand, detectives arrive at the Comiati home with crime scene investigators where they are greeted by Rosemary and allowed inside without incident. Detective Mitchell takes Paul Jr. outside. They're thinking that he may, you know, cause some kind of disturbance or object to seeing people poking around the house. So they take him outside and he talks, Mitchell talks with him while Williams talks with Rosemary on the inside of the house while it is being searched. So Williams recalls how calm and casual Rosemary was. She didn't seem concerned. She didn't seem worried at all. She offered him a drink. She even offered him a cigarette from an open pack that had belonged to Paul Sr. And Williams, you know, of course, thinks this is weird, you know, wouldn't she be at least a little nervous thinking that she's a suspect at this point? 
or that they're not buying her story at the very least. So it, it, you know, it's weird. So the crime scene investigators find blood in the master bedroom. Like we said, especially after dismembering his body, it's a bloody, bloody, bloody crime scene. And you can use as much bleach as you want. Once the investigators go in there with the luminol, they're going to find whatever you didn't get, right? So they do find blood in the room. Paul Jr., meanwhile, sitting with Detective Mitchell outside in the police cruiser, starts to talk. He tells him that everybody was home at the time of the murder and that they were all involved. Once the search is over, detectives, of course, take Paul into custody and to the station, where they get the full and gruesome story. So now they need to bring in Marianne, Billy, and Rosemary. So they begin with Marianne and charge her with the murder. They find Billy Vandiver hiding out on his family's farm in Missouri a few days later, and they bring him back to Hammond and charge him with murder as well. Eventually, Paul Jr. and Rosemary are also arrested and charged with the murder. So during the police interviews, each member of the family points the fingers at the other members of the family and lessening their involvement in the murders. Police decide to offer a deal to Marianne Comiati. Now they decide to offer Marianne the deal because she has the most to lose and they figure she'll take the deal. Having a child to think about, she has the most to lose in their eyes. So they offer her eight years in prison if she will testify against her mother, her brother, and her husband. She is even informed that they will be seeking the death penalty for Billy Vandiver, her husband. Police recall that her response was, quote, Oh, Billy really won't like that. He hates electricity. End quote. <laughs> what? First of all, what does that even mean? Hates electricity? Who hates electricity? I, I mean, <laughs> what does that even mean? Hates to be electrocuted? Everybody hates that, don't they? Uh, so anyway, weird. So Marianne agrees. And the trial begins in December of 1983 against Rosemary and Paul Comiati Jr. And on the stand, they both claim that they participated in the murder of Paul Sr. and in the cover-up because they were afraid of Billy Van Diver. The jury doesn't buy it. Rosemary is sentenced to 100 years. She is in her 50s, I believe, at the time of conviction. Paul Jr. received 50 years, and at the time he was only 17, which is why the judge didn't give him the 100, I guess, but still, I mean, that's pretty much life. Um, so the judge summed up the Comiati family at the sentencing, stating, quote, the Comiati family is genetically free of feelings and showed a blackened character of epic proportions, end quote. I think that sums them up beautifully. 
to the goddamn T. All right. So next is the trial of William or Billy, as we've been calling him, of course, Van Diver. He's convicted and he is sentenced to death by electrocution, which was the mode that they used back in 1983 or, you know, in the 80s. Billy Van Diver stated that he wanted to get it over with. He wanted to go out like a man. So he didn't want to prolong the wait on death row. And so he refused any options for appeals. Because, you know, if you are charged with the death penalty or um, life in prison, murder, serious charges like that, you're always allowed to appeal the sentencing. And he didn't. So two years go by and it's finally the day of his execution. And Billy Van Diver is strapped to the chair, the electric chair. And what was supposed to be a quick death by electrical shock. So the idea is that it takes one time and the person will die within minutes, seconds even. Well, it didn't happen that way. It turned out to be a prolonged and excruciating process. The first hit of electricity did not kill him. The second jolt did not kill him. Finally, the third blast killed him. And all in all, it took about 17 minutes for him to die. So it was not quick. It was not painless. He suffered. Hmm. Kind of reminiscent of how Paul Sr. suffered. This is what we call poetic justice, my friends. All right. So Rosemary died in prison in February of 2012. So she served about 29 years. She was 86 years old when she died. Paul Jr. was actually released in May of 2009 after serving 25 years. After only two months, he violated his parole. He was caught with two escaped prisoners in Michigan City, Indiana, and police were unsure if he had some hand in their escape or he just met up with them by chance. Either way, his parole was revoked and he was sent back to prison. He was released only a couple months later, though. A year later, he was in a bike accident in 2010, and he was severely injured. And he actually recalls that he had been in a coma for 22 days. He had several surgeries and suffered severe facial injuries. His appearance is forever changed. He also doesn't seem to be able to stay out of trouble. He was arrested again in drug charges for drug dealing. So I don't know. He does maintain even today that he does not regret the murder of his father or his participation in it. And he says that he saw it as protecting his mother and he would do it again. Marianne Comiati served her eight years and has had no contact with her brother or other family. 
and she's in the wind somewhere, presumably living her life. I have to wonder what happened to her son, to Billy and Marianne's son, the grandson that Paul Sr. loved so well. Does he know that his mother and father, as well as his grandma and uncle, conspired to kill his grandpa? Does he know that his father cut his grandpa up into pieces and that the family laughed about it? Does he remember the volatile household he spent his early years in? I hope he is somewhere living a happy life far away from the ghosts of his past. That is our story for today, curious listener. Please send us an email at cornfedkillerpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts, ideas for upcoming episodes. Follow us on Instagram. You can check out some pictures of the killers on there. And I will see you next time, curious listener.